Man, gospel this morning, big gospel. Uh, I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and then we'll pray, and then, uh, and then we'll get going here. God's word says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles." Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. This is God's inerrant, infallible, and all-sufficient word. Let's pray. God, everyone in this place this morning needs your word. Everyone in this place this morning needs the gospel. Make it clear. Move me out of the way in my bumbling. Move me out of the way, Lord, and speak to your people. Feed your sheep this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> I know I talk up here a good bit. Most of you know that uh, I used to be a teacher and a football coach. But what some of you might not know is that before that, I used to be a personal trainer. Okay? I know that's hard to believe. Okay, I'm getting the dad bod going on. Okay? So I used to train athletes. So my, my degree... Uh, from college is actually exercise science. That's what my degree is in, okay? Now, I don't remember a lot about what I studied in college, but I remember a few things, okay? And one of the things I remember is I remember what a mitochondria is, okay? And pro- if, if, you, if you've been past fourth grade, you probably know also what a mitochondria is, okay? <laughs> a mitochondria is, is known as the powerhouse of a muscle cell. In case you didn't know, like, if you have a bicep, that's not just one muscle. That's a muscle that's made up of millions of cells. And those cells have to produce energy in order for us to be able to do anything. So what a mitochondria does is a mitochondria, it actually produces something called adenosine triphosphate, which, or ATP for short. And that ATP is what gives us energy to do things, for our muscles to actually move. So, for instance, if I were to just put my finger here on this table and pick it up, that took energy. That took, I can't do that without Mitochondria, okay? If you don't have mitochondria, you can't do anything really. So imagine, imagine how many mitochondria and how much energy has to be produced in order for someone to run a marathon or go through like a five-round UFC fight, right? 
you're having to produce a lot of energy, right? You can't do it without the mitochondria. So a man can't fight, can't swim, can't run, can't hold a child, can't do anything without functioning mitochondria within your muscle cells, right? You're probably like, well, what the heck are we talking about? Well, if the mitochondria is what produces energy for our bodies, then what produces energy for the church? You see, Paul has just spent almost the entire book of Corinthians up to this point dealing with issues going on in the church, right? You got to have unity, not divisions. We have to be humble, We have to handle issues among ourselves. We have to flee sexual immorality. We have to have marriages that honor God. Singles have to pour into the church. Surrender your rights for other people's sake. Avoid idolatry. Rightly take the Lord's Supper. Properly use the spiritual gifts for the building up of the body. Chapter 13, do everything out of love. These are just some of the things that Paul has talked to this church about, correcting their behaviors. So how do we have the energy to do that? How do we, how does the church have the energy to do all of these things? It's the gospel. The gospel is what we must be grounded on in order to do any of those things. So, I submit to you this morning, the gospel is the mitochondria of the church. All right? The gospel is what produces energy for us to move forward unified for kingdom work. That's what it is. And Paul is going to make that very clear. Okay? I've got three main sections in the text today. Okay? So everybody come with me. The first section, we're going to be there for most of the time because that's, that's where the meat is. That's where the heavy lifting has to be done. My first section is going to be verses 1 through 4. And this is called the mitochondria of the church. Let's reread verses 1 through 4 here together. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's look at verse 1. Okay, couple of couple of observations from verse 1. He says, now. That's the first word, now. All the things that he said up to this point, now Paul is changing his tune. He's, he's turning, a different, turning a corner here. Now, I have a new thought. We're going to approach this new thought now, okay? And notice, notice the, pastoral, uh, the pastoral heart of Paul here, right? Because he's just spent the whole book talking about guys sleeping with their mother-in-laws, getting drunk on the communion wine, people suing each other in the church, right? He's been dealing with some hard issues, but, but guess what? He addresses them again here as brothers, right? He, is, he, he loves this church. However jacked up they are, and they are jacked up, he loves these brothers. He loves this church, right? So he calls them brothers. That's important for us to remember. I, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel. 
Remember back in chapter 2, what did Paul say about the gospel? He said, I'm going to come to you not preaching fancy words. I'm coming and I'm preaching Christ and him crucified. That's it. So if the gospel is the mitochondria of the church, which I submit to you that it is, the question then is how do we continue to allow that mitochondria to produce energy within the church? What, ha- what has to be done with that gospel in order for us to continue to produce mitochondrial energy within the church? I have three steps, okay? Steps, it's a bad, it's a bad word, but that's what we're gonna call it, steps, okay? Step number one, the gospel must be preached. Look at verse one. I remind you, brothers, of the gospel, what? I preach to you. Look at verse two. And which you are being saved if you hold fast the word I preached to you. Look at verse three. For I delivered to you as of what was first importance, right? What did, how did he deliver it? He preached it, right? The, the most important thing, the ground level thing that we need to do to have the gospel continue to produce in the church, kingdom f- moving forward, is to preach the gospel, right? Just like if you were to remove a mitochondria from a muscle cell, we would all just be frozen in time. None of us would be able to move. We wouldn't be able to lift our fingers. We wouldn't be able to shut our eyes or open our eyes. We would just all be stuck. If you remove the gospel from the church, we're all going to be spiritually frozen in time and stuck. And we're going to be stuck in what? We're going to be stuck in our sin. We're not going to have the strength to, uh, to kill sin. We're not going to have the strength to fight against sin. We're not going to have the strength to, and the energy to help others fight their sin. We're not going to have the strength to do anything if the gospel is not there. The gospel is what produces that energy within the church to continue to grow in Christ-likeness. Nobody wants to be stuck in their besetting sins. Right? The gospel needs to continue to be preached faithfully. And that's why we do it every week in this church. Every week you're going to hear the gospel. Why? Because it's, it's what produces energy. It produces adenosine triphosphate within the church. Right. So, number one, the gospel must be preached. Step number two, the gospel must be received. You see, the whole reason why Paul is writing this letter is because he preached the gospel to them, right? But because he received it first, right? He received the gospel. Look at verse 3. I delivered to you as a first importance what? I also received, right? There was a time where Paul received the gospel. Write this down. You can go look at it later. Galatians chapter 1, verse 12. Jesus himself revealed the gospel to Paul. Paul received it directly from the Lord Jesus. Right? And, and stay with me here. This church exists, and all of the churches in the New Testament that Paul planted and was involved in, they exist because the gospel did a mitochondrial, if that's a word, I'm making it up, a mitochondrial work 
in him that produced spiritual energy that motivated him to go around the known world and preach the gospel. But just as the gospel was received by Paul and energized him, he's encouraging the church at Corinth. Hey, he's saying, look, you received it too, verse one. I preached it to you and you received it. So if you've received, if I received the gospel and you're the fruit of me receiving the gospel, then there should be fruit from you receiving the gospel. There should be fruit in all of our lives if we've truly received the gospel because the gospel creates in us an energy to move forward in our Christian lives. And he's encouraging this church to move forward. Right? Stop. We, I just listed like 12 things that he's already addressed with them. We got to make these things right. The gospel should be producing energy to make those things within the church right. But not only does he say that they've received it, he says that they're standing in it. I started thinking about this, picturing in my head, what, is, what, is it, what does that mean? I'm thinking to myself, the picture of someone standing in the gospel means they're ready for action. If someone's, if someone's sitting down, they ain't ready for action. If someone's standing, that means we're ready to go. We're ready for action, right? Well, Jesus, he gets to sit down. He's sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because he doesn't have any work left to do except return. He's all, it is finished. He has accomplished all that he was meant to accomplish. But guess what? We haven't. We don't get to sit down. We need to be standing all the time, ready for action. So I have two pictures that came to my mind when I thought about what it means to stand. The first one is Ezekiel chapter 37. It's the Valley of Dry Bones. After, after Ezekiel prophesies over these bones and they, they come up and they become alive again, the prophet says in verse 10, he says, they lived and there they stood an exceedingly great army. Why did God bring those bones back to life? To be ready for battle, that's why. To stand and be ready to fight. Israel had enemies, still got enemies today, right? We have enemies too, and our enemies never stop. So when you sit down, you lose. We talked about that at the men's retreat. What happened to David when he got spiritually lazy? Whoo! The second second thing that came to my mind when I thought about standing. Would you put Ephesians chapter 6 up there, please? Listen to this. Same author as to the first screen. Listen, listen, Listen to what he says. Therefore, take up your whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have done all to stand firm. Stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore, there it is again, stand, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness, standing readiness, given by what? 
the gospel of peace. See, they're sta- he, he encourages them. He says, you're standing in the gospel. That's great. We all need to be standing in the gospel, ready to go, ready for action, ready for battle all the time. That's what Ephesians chapter 6, that's what the armor of God is about, ready for battle. We are constantly, 100% of the time, in a battle. And if we don't recognize that, we lose the battle. So let me ask you this. There's a lot of things in this life and in this world that you can stand on. What are you standing on? Are you standing on the fact that you have a retirement account? Are you standing on the fact that your family looks really good on Facebook? Picture perfect. Are you standing on the fact that you have a good job? If that's true, you ain't ready for action. And guess what? The action's coming whether you wanted to or not. The gospel is what we must stand on. Anything else, we will not be ready. We will not be standing firm. The gospel must be preached. The gospel must be received. Third step, the gospel must be possessed and held and kept. Look at verse 2. In, in which you are being saved if you what? Hold fast the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Let's talk quickly about what it means being saved. Okay? You're like, well, I thought I was already saved. You are saved. If you've trusted in Christ, you are saved. That's true. You are justified. You are, your, your sins have been imputed to Christ. His perfect righteousness has been imputed and given to you. Therefore, you are not only just not guilty, but you are found righteous in the eyes of God because of his, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Praise God. Amen? But you ain't there yet. None of us are. We all still have indwelling sin. Go read John Owen's book, Killing Sin. Why? Because we all have sin that needs to be killed. We are being saved. Sanctification is a progressive, lifelong process of being made into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We won't get there in this life. And then in the future, we will one day be finally saved when either our Lord returns or we are brought home to be with him. No, don't, don't get confused about being saved, okay? It's a, you are saved if you've trusted in Christ, but we're also being saved. Hold fast. I want to talk about this. In the Greek, this means to possess, to have possession of something, okay? Now, there are a lot of people out there that profess that they have the gospel, that they are standing on the gospel, that they believe the gospel. Nancy Pelosi says she believes the gospel. I mean, right? I mean, that's, that's a hard, that's, that's a tough one, right? <laughs> Just because someone professes does not mean that they possess. Those are two different things, right? 
The gospel, in order to produce fruit and produce that energy within us, we must actually possess it. Otherwise, it's just works-based. It's not real heart change. It's just behavior modification. Anybody can do behavior modification. Is our, are we possessing the gospel and the fruit and the energy of that are causing us to be more like Christ? I submit to you this morning, the gospel is the most valuable possession that has ever existed in the history of time. I didn't give this one to you. That's my fault. I'm going to read it anyways. I don't care. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 44 through 46 here. Recognize the kingdom of heaven is directly connected to the gospel. Those two things are constantly intertwined, okay? Just so we're clear. Look at, look at, look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then his joy, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Why? Because the gospel is the greatest possession in the history of mankind. Look at verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's the greatest, most valuable possession is the gospel. The gospel must be preached, it must be received, and it must truly be possessed in order to produce adenosine triphosphate within the church. So then, what is the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Paul answers it right here, right? He, in verse 1, he says he wants to remind them of the gospel. So now he's going to remind them what the gospel is. He's, he's told them, he's reminded them, you believed it, you received it, you're holding fast, hold fast, stand firm. He's reminded them all those things. So what are they actually holding fast and standing firm on? Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Okay, let me stop right there just real quickly. Make, it, make, it, make a note. He didn't say only importance. Okay? The gospel is of first importance. There are other things that are important in the church. But this is of first importance. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So let's break that into two, two sections there. Christ died for our sins. So who is this Christ? Okay. I don't want to assume anything. You guys come to four points, so you, I'm sure you know who Christ is, but we're going to talk about who Christ is, okay? He is the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what that's what. Christ means. So who is this Christ? It's the second person of the Trinity. The eternal son of the Father. Begotten, not made. We'll talk about that later. Okay? In eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenanted among themselves. It's called the covenant of redemption to redeem a people 
to himself. And in that covenant, the son, the second person, willingly submitted to the father's will to purchase back those people whom the father has given to him. This is not an eternal functional subordinationism in case somebody's out there and wants to pick, pick apart my words on a podcast or something, okay? Not eternal functional subordinationism. If you want to know what that is, talk to me afterward. At the determined time, the son of, took on full human flesh, a full body, a full human nature to himself. He was born of a virgin, and his name was Jesus. That's who the Christ is. That's who the anointed one is. He's the son with a human flesh and human nature brought to himself willingly. So what did he do with this human nature? By the way, Philippians chapter 2, great cross-reference there. He made himself in the light. He was born in the likeness of men, just like us. We needed a Savior who was just like us, so he became just like us. So what did this Messiah, what did this Christ, what did he do? Well, he died for our sins. It's right there in verse 3, right? We, we, we say it every week here. He died for our sins. Well, why did he have to die? Because you deserve to die. That's why he had to die. I deserve to die. That's why he had to die. We all deserve to die. Every one of us. The wages of sin is death. And our first representative, Adam, whose name means mankind, by the way, so he was a representative of all mankind. Our first representative, he did not obey God. So when Adam sinned, you sinned. When Adam sinned, I sinned. That's why Jesus had to die, because we deserve to die. Jesus came as the last Adam, and he perfectly obeyed where the first Adam did not obey. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, Philippians 2.8. And he did this in accordance with the scriptures. This, did, this is not just like a, a weird event that took place that nobody had ever heard about. No, the whole Old Testament testifies to this event, the crucifixion, Jesus dying for sins. The whole Old Testament testifies to it. So I'm going to give you four types or foreshadows from the Old Testament of Jesus and what he would accomplish for us. And then I'm going to give you one direct prophecy about it. Okay? Here we go. Four typologies of the sacrifice of Christ. Number one, after Adam and Eve sinned and they tried to cover themselves with the fig leaves, cover their shame, they were not able to. None of us can cover ourselves and our shame, cover our shame. None of us can. So what did God do? He sacrificed an animal. He sacrificed an animal, and, they, and he gave them what was proper to cover their shame. That points us to the sacrifice of Christ that would cover our sin and our shame. Second thing that points to Christ is the proto-evangelion, or the first time the gospel was preached, 
right? God was talking to the serpent, and he said to the serpent, there's going to be strife and enmity between your line, your seed, and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman, you're going to bruise his heel, and he's going to crush your head. That's the gospel. That's pointing forward to Jesus' sacrifice and how his sacrifice would crush that serpent. Third type from the Old Testament, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Right? What happened? Abraham took Isaac up the hill. He was ready to kill his, own, his only son. And the angel said, don't do it. And what did he do? He provided a substitute sacrifice from the ram that was in the thicket. If you go read that story, that's all gospel. I mean, that, that, whole, that whole thing, right? Resurrection, I don't have time to get into it, right? Abraham told his servants, he was like, hey, me and the boy are going to go up here and worship, and we're both coming back. And Hebrews confirms that Abraham truly believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. Finally, the, the entire sacrificial system in the whole Old Testament. So you go through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that whole system that God created of sacrificing animals, that was all pointing to Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. All of it was. Now I want to give you a prof, direct prophecy from the Old Testament of this event. Will you put Isaiah 53 back up there, or up there please? Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Direct prophecy of Jesus dying for our sins. The whole Old Testament points to it. All right, look at verse 4. Let's read it together. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Okay. Why did Paul, why did Paul add that he was buried? Because he actually died. There are, there are multiple theories out there from liberal theologians or whoever or skeptics that would say that Jesus didn't actually truly die, that he just like passed out or did this. Phooey, okay? The women that saw him be crucified walked with Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb and watched him be laid in the tomb dead. And we're going to talk about all these witnesses that Paul brings up in a minute, talk about how this is, truly is a historical event and not just some fooey that people made up or whatever, right? Something that this apostle stole the body or some hogwash, right? He was raised on the third day. Our Savior did not stay dead. We're going to talk about resurrection for the next few weeks. So I just want to give you, this is not an exhaustive list. I want to give you five things that the resurrection means for us. Number one. It means that the father accepted the sacrifice of the son. Why? Because it was a perfect sacrifice. He was a spotless lamb. He was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. The, without spot, without blemish, 
the, the sacrifice was perfect, therefore the father accepted the sacrifice of the son. Second thing, we are justified. The resurrection means that we are justified. Will you put Romans chapter 4 up there for us? 24 and 25. Did I give you that one? Oh, I did. Praise God. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 25. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and what? Raised for our justification. The resurrection means that we are righteous before a holy God now. Third thing, we say this every week. Sin, death, hell, and the grave are conquered. One day there will be no sin. Why? Because Jesus is alive. That's why. You and I won't go to hell. Why? Because Jesus is alive. We will not experience the second death. Why? Because Christ is alive. They have been conquered on our behalf. That's amazing. Fourth thing. Therefore, we don't have to fear death. The end of chapter 15, when we get there, Paul says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is gone for the believer. For those in Christ, we don't have, which is good news, which is good news. That means the boldness that we should have with the gospel as the church, the boldness should be at an all-time high. Right? There's a chance we'll give our lives for Christ. Praise God. Why would we be willing to? Because Jesus is alive. And we don't fear death. We don't fear man. Fifth thing, it means that we have a living high priest who constantly makes intercession for us. That's an incredible truth as well. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for us because he's alive. I'll give you this quote. I thought it was pretty good. This is Yoroslav Pelikan. It's his name. He's, a, he's, a, he's, an, he's an Orthodox Lutheran theologian. And this is what he said. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. It's true. We'll talk later on about how we're most to be pitied if he's not risen. And he did this he rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. I'm gonna give you one Old Testament typology and then two direct prophecies of this rising from the dead. The typology in the Old Testament of the resurrection is Jonah, right? Three days in the belly of the fish and then that fish vomited Jonah out. And then in the New Testament, Jesus quotes that as pointing to his resurrection, he said, just, just as Jonah was three days in the whale, I will be three days in the belly of the earth. And guess what? Just as that fish did not hold Jonah in there, so too the earth could not hold the Son of God. It had to vomit him out. 
Why? Because he created it. That's why. Psalm 16.10. Uh, I will not abandon your, your soul to Sheol. Your, your holy one will not see corruption. Oh, I memorized it. Hey, there it is. Right? That's... That's talking about Jesus. That's a prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus. We know this because when Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, he actually says that this is fulfilled and that this prophecy in Psalm 16 pointed to the resurrection. And he said that when he was preaching in Acts chapter 2. And then the second prophecy was from Jesus' own mouth. He said, tear down this temple in three days and what? Well, I will raise it up. He prophesied his own Resurrection. All of these things that we just read, that's the mitochondria of the church there. Those things are what give us, produce in the church, energy to do kingdom work. And we'll talk more specifically about what that looks like. That was point number one. We got 11 minutes. No problem. Second section is verses five through nine, okay? I, I labeled this section manifold witness. Let's read them, let's read them again quickly. He, so, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Manifold witness. Why, why is it necessary for all of these witnesses to be talked about here? So I want to give you two observations that I made, just from just general observations. Number one, the law of God in Deuteronomy chapter 19 says, A matter shall be established on the evidence of two to three witnesses. Well, here we have like 700 witnesses, right? So even in his resurrection, Jesus is fulfilling the law of God. Hundreds of people, not two or three, hundreds. Second observation, clearly the Corinthians have a jacked up view of what the resurrection actually is. There's a theological disconnect somewhere that's a really a problem. If you, if you jump down to verse 12, look what Paul says. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So there is a group of people in the Corinthian church that we don't know who they are, but they believe that resurrection is either not possible, maybe they're, the, maybe they're a group of Sadducees that don't believe that the resurrection is possible, they just have an error, theological error about the resurrection. So those are my two general observations. Now, I want to look at the two different sets of, of things, groups, okay? Paul mentions three individual people here, and he mentions three different groups of people. So we're going to look at both of those really quickly. In verse 5, he mentions that Jesus revealed himself to Cephas. That's Peter. What happened the last time Peter and Jesus were together? Peter denied Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he was going to. So in Peter, we have a denier of Christ. Not salvifically, but he denied him three times. Verse, verse 7, he revealed himself to James. 
That's Jesus' brother. So Jesus reveals himself to his brother. Why? Because the, the Gospels tell us James wasn't a believer in Jesus. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So we have a denier of Jesus. We have an unbeliever of Jesus. And then we have Paul in verse 8 and 9. He reveals himself to be a persecutor of Jesus. So we have a denier of Jesus. We have an unbeliever of Jesus. And we have a persecutor of Jesus. Why does this, all of this matter? These are three of the most unlikely men to make up a story like this. They wouldn't make something up like this. Their credibility is airtight because one's a denier, one's an unbeliever, and one's a persecutor. They wouldn't make something like this up. This goes to show the historicity and the fact that Jesus truly was raised from the dead. Right? And then the second set, where he has three groups. Verse, tw- uh, verse 5, he says, the 12, he revealed himself to 11 plus Matthias. Matthias was the replacement for Judas. Then he revealed himself to 500 brothers, and they're still alive. Why is it important that they're still alive? Because they can still give eyewitness testimony that they saw Jesus risen. You could still go and talk to him and say, hey, man, did you see Jesus risen? Yep, sure did. You can do the research yourself. Verse 7, all the apostles, probably includes James and Paul who were not part of the original 12, okay? Why, why, why all of this? Why is Paul bringing up all of these people that saw Christ resurrected? It's because the sheer number of them cannot be disputed. And it is because these apostles, they walked with Jesus for three years. They would recognize him immediately. This combined with those three individuals that would not make it up, this confirms and affirms that the resurrection is a historical event. This really happened in time. I was going to give you five theories, hallucination theories, and mistaken body theories, and I was going to give you some of that. I can give it to you later, right? But there are, th- there are dozens of theories of how Jesus actually wasn't raised from the dead, right? So, Mitochondria of the church, manifold witness. Finally, third section, mitochondrial grace. Remember what we said the mitochondria does. What does it do? It produces energy for kingdom work. Let's read verses 10 and 11 together. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, so you believed. All right. Three things by way of application here from these two verses. All right. Number one, verse 10, first first part. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, you are what you are. You are where you are for a reason. God's grace brought you to that point. Paul was killing Christians, and now he's saving them. I ask you this. Where were you before 
you met Christ, before he showed up in your life, what were you doing? Some of you, you maybe have been Christian since you were like six years old. That was not my case. I can remember what I was doing before Christ. It was bad, real bad. And I know there are other people in this room that remember what they were doing before Christ. And it was bad, real bad. But by God's grace, I am what I am. By God's grace, you are what you are. Maybe, where, where are you now that Christ has in, in, is in your life? Where, where has he brought you from before him to now? Think about that. Think about what, where his grace has brought you from and what it has brought you to. Maybe you were addicted to drugs or something and now you have a, now you have a wife and a family and you're raising your children in the Lord. Man, that's incredible. That's by God's grace and only by his grace. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're... But, you're, but you, you, you're out of a bad lifestyle. He's brought you to where you are. Man, that's by God's grace. He has you there for a reason. In every area of our lives, there is kingdom work to be done. And we need the gospel to produce that energy to do that kingdom work. Second thing, kingdom work is hard work. Look at, the, look, at the, look at the end of verse 10. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He worked harder than any of the apostles. That's what he's saying. So let me ask you this. Men, are you working harder than anyone else to love your wives well, to lead your family well, to raise your children well? Single men, are you working harder than anyone else to protect your eyes, to protect your purity, to not let things that shouldn't be going into your head and into your mind and into your heart? Dads, are you working harder than anyone else to raise your kids, to love the Lord? And I challenge myself this too. I need to be challenged. Married women, are you working harder than anyone else to love and respect your husband and to work alongside him to raise your kids? Single women, are you working harder than anyone else to, to be modest, to pursue modesty and purity? This is all kingdom work. You don't have to stand on a stage and preach from the Bible for it to be kingdom work. Kingdom work is in your home, primarily in your home. More than anything up here that any of us do up here in your home. That's where kingdom work is done. The gospel has to produce that energy to do that hard work. It's not easy. Third thing, by way of application. Kingdom work, it requires all of us. Look at verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Kingdom work, it requires all of us. Remember, Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. 
God is the only one who will get the glory for the kingdom work that gets done. If there's anyone that deserved glory for doing kingdom work, it was Paul. He will get none of the glory because he deserves none of the glory. Only God deserves the glory because it's only by grace that he is what he is, that he's not still killing Christians. It's by grace that you're not still sleeping around or doing drugs or whatever it is. It's by God's grace. We will receive none of the glory because we don't deserve any of the glory. But we're to work harder than anyone else to bring glory to God by his grace. It didn't matter in Corinth whether Peter preached the gospel, Apollos preached the gospel, Paul preached the gospel. It didn't matter. God is the one who gets all the glory because he's the one who made it grow. So may, like the mitochondria, may the gospel produce in us the energy to lock arms together and move the kingdom of God forward by his grace for his glory alone. Let's pray. God, you are so good and we need your grace. We need the gospel to produce kingdom work energy in us. Continue to do that for your glory, God, by your grace. And may we be built up as a church because of it, because we're standing on the gospel. It's in Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen. So, I, I did this last minute. I'm going to ask everybody to stand. We're going, to rec- we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. All right. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Go in peace.